Yo, today's QOD is, there is simply no substitute for a group's self-development. Here we go. Quote of the day show. I'm your host, Sean Croxton of SeanCroxton.com. We got a brand new speaker on the show today. His name is Jason L. Riley. He is one of my favorite authors of all time. He's, he's written a phenomenal book. I highly recommend that you read. It is called Please Stop Helping Us. Like, go to Amazon, go to your bookstore, get it right now, and read that thing. It's incredible. Now, I'm often asked what I think is the solution to racial disparities in our country. And while that's a complex issue, my answer is usually this, is two things. Honest leadership and accurate information instead of race hustling and false narratives. Today's clip, it's a bit different from our standard QOD content, but since it is Black History Month, I thought that this would be the appropriate time to have Jason on the show. Because much of what we are told about race is just incredibly inaccurate. And when you take a look at the results, when you take an honest, hard look at the facts about what has happened in Black America since the civil rights era, what you'll find is it's surprising. Because the truth is that the policies that people fight for in the name of helping Black people have actually made things worse. As Jason would say, these policies have good intentions, but they yield perverse outcomes. In other words, the more people try to help, the worse things seem to get, which again is a reason why I love his book, Please Stop Helping Us. Another book I recommend is called Character Development by Booker T. Washington. And the reason I'm a huge Booker T. Washington fan is because he was an honest leader. Instead of promoting dependency, he taught development. And I like to say if Booker T. was still alive, he'd say, hey, make yourself useful. Show up on time. Develop your skills. Pull up your pants. Start your own business read more books, father your children, take responsibility, stop making fun of kids who do well in school, and accept the fact, the fact that white guilt will not save you. And that's the thing. These policies that aren't helping are very much a product of white guilt. And of people trying to absolve themselves of their privilege. You know, my question is guilt for what? I've never met a slave owner in my whole entire life. Like not one. You know, we talk about privilege. I I don't, I don't really believe in white privilege. I don't think that's really a thing, right? I'm sure there's arguments for that and against it, but I just personally just choose to not believe in that because I know way more broke ass white people who are struggling than I know white people who are successful. And it's not even close. 
And if white privilege is really a thing, why are Asian Americans crushing white people in almost all relevant statistical categories? So again, we need honesty. We need leaders who don't preach victimhood and entitlement. We need leaders who encourage personal and professional development. And we need facts, not narratives. And so you're going to learn a lot of facts in this clip. It's a long one, so, so buckle up. And I hope you feel inspired to watch the entire video clip and share it with a friend. Jason Riley is coming up. What I wanted to talk about for a few minutes this evening is what has happened in the wake of these civil rights victories and political victories that were supposed to lead to greater economic prosperity, particularly for the black poor. What has risen from the ruins of Jim Crow in terms of policies aimed at blacks in general and the black underclass in particular? Where has there been progress? Where has there been retrogression? What's working? What's not working? And how much of what's not working can we blame on racism? I think it's a good time to ask those questions because this year also marks the 50th anniversary of the Great Society programs that were supposed to eliminate poverty and reduce racial inequality in America. Just before signing that Voting Rights Act into law, Lyndon Johnson gave a famous speech at Howard University, the historically black college in Washington, D.C., where he talked about what the government should do next on behalf of blacks. This was merely the end of the beginning, he said. And then he said, that beginning is freedom, and the barriers to that freedom are tumbling down. Freedom is the right to share, share fully and equally in American society, to vote, to hold a job, to enter a public place, to go to school, said Johnson. But freedom is not enough, he added. Do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and then say you are free to compete with all the others and think that you have been completely fair to that person. Johnson said that the next and more profound stage of the battle for civil rights was not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. Johnson had moved the goalpost. He was saying that equal opportunity isn't enough. He wanted the government to ensure equal outcomes. But what if Johnson was mistaken? What if there are limits to what the government can do beyond removing barriers to freedom? What if the best that we can hope for from our elected officials are policies that promote a level playing field? And what if policy makers risk creating more problems to progress, more barriers to progress when the focus is on equal outcomes? I think there are limits, even when the policies are well-intentioned. And I think the past half century is evidence of that. For more than 50 years, the political left has pushed for more government assistance for blacks through racial preferences, forced integration, expanded welfare entitlements, and so forth. Black leaders have urged racial solidarity and prioritized the pursuit of political power. Between 1970 and 2010, 
The number of black elected officials in America grew from fewer than 1,500 to more than 10,000, including, of course, a black president. But how has this helped the black underclass? In 2013, Mississippi had more black elected officials than any other state in the nation, yet it continues to have one of the highest poverty rates in the nation, including black poverty. Over the past half century, the U.S. has spent some $20 trillion after inflation on anti-poverty programs alone. What do we have to show for it? The official poverty rate in 2012 was higher than it was in 1966. And the black-white poverty gap has widened over the past decade. The racial disparity in incarceration rates is also larger today than it was in 1960. Black unemployment, on average, has been twice as high as white unemployment for five decades. Yes, gains have been made. On balance, blacks are certainly better off than they were in 1965. But the track record regarding the black poor is appalling. It's clear that government programs aren't the solution to many of the problems this group faces. The great society programs may be well-intentioned, but they aren't getting the job done. And the question is why? The short answer is that the focus has been on redistributing wealth to blacks instead of producing wealth among blacks. The lesson of the past 50 years ought to be that simply transferring cash and in-kind benefits and services to the poor does not necessarily make people more prosperous. I think blacks ultimately must help themselves. They must develop the same attitudes and habits and behaviors that other groups developed in order to rise in America. And to the extent that a government policy, however well-intentioned, interferes with that necessary self-development, it's doing more harm than good. Open-ended welfare benefits do not help people develop a work ethic, which is ultimately what they must develop in order to rise out of poverty. Increasing the minimum wage to whatever the number is today, $15 an hour, will simply increase the cost of hiring younger, less experienced workers, many of whom happen to be black. So fewer blacks will wind up getting that first job and the experience that comes with it. Soft on crime policies make ghettos more dangerous for the mostly law-abiding residents who live there. And they make life easier for the criminals who of course prey primarily on the black poor and so on. Yet all of these policies continue to be pushed in the name of helping the black poor. And the promoters of the policies don't seem very interested in reevaluating what has been tried before. It's also important to note the progress that was occurring among blacks prior to the implementation of these policies that have been designed to help them. Programs that often receive all of the credit for any progress that we have seen. For example, between 1940 and 1960, 
black poverty in the U.S. fell by 40 percentage points. That's before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Acts were passed. That was during Jim Crow. That was during a period of open, rampant, and legal discrimination in this country, racial discrimination, a 40 percentage point drop in black poverty. Now, poverty continued to fall after the Great Society programs were implemented in the 1960s, but at a much slower rate. At best, the Great Society continued a trend already in place, yet these programs are given all the credit for any reductions in poverty that we've seen. The reality is that no Great Society program has ever come close to matching the reduction in black poverty that we saw prior to the implementation of that policy. No Great Society program has ever come close to matching what blacks were doing on their own before the government decided to step in and help. The notion that black people must help themselves is not based on some right-wing extremist ideology. It's based on experience. History shows that there simply is no substitute for a group's self-development. Government programs cannot save us, and an overdependence on them can do great harm. Affirmative action, racial preferences, are another example of a program that gets more credit than it deserves. In this case, credit for increasing the size of the black middle class. Again, what does the record show? Well, it shows that between 1930 and 1970, the percentage of black white-collar workers quadrupled in the U.S. Between 1950 and 1960, in New York City alone, the number of black accountants increased by 220%. The number of engineers grew by 134%. The number of teachers grew by 125%. Physicians and lawyers grew by 56% and 55% respectively. Nurses increased by 90% and so on. That's before affirmative action policies were implemented. That's during a period when you could put a sign in your window that said, we don't hire blacks. Yet in the face of these obstacles, blacks were entering the skilled professions at unprecedented rates. Again, yes, blacks continued to enter the white collar professions in the wake of racial preferences. But again, that simply continued an existing trend. There was a substantial black middle class already in existence by the end of the 1960s. It has continued to grow, but at a much slower rate. And as with black poverty reduction, no affirmative action program has ever come close to matching what blacks were doing on their own prior to the implementation of the policy. Moreover, racial preferences have not helped the poor, as the proponents promised. Instead, they have worked mostly to help already well-off blacks become better off. There have been case studies, for example, in Atlanta in the 1970s and 80s, where under black mayors like Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young, the city implemented racial preference policies 
for hiring black city workers and black contractors. Well, what happened? Well, the number of successful black businesses increased rapidly, but average income blacks were left behind and the black poor actually lost ground. And that's been the story of the black poor, not only in Atlanta, but nationwide. In the era of affirmative action, the black underclass has lost ground, both in absolute terms and relative to the white underclass. In the 1970s and 80s, and even into the 1990s, so we're talking about the first full decades of affirmative action policies, the poorest 20% of blacks saw their incomes decline at more than double the rate of comparable whites. Again, the empirical data shows that in an era of racial preferences and quotas and set-asides put in place to help the black poor, that subset has regressed. Affirmative action in higher education was also supposed to increase the ranks of black professionals. But after California banned racial preferences in college admissions, what happened? Well, black graduation rates rose. Instead of being funneled into schools where they, admitted, where they were overmatched but admitted anyway for diversity reasons, black students started going or started doing what white students and Asian students already do. They attended schools that better matched their skill level. And as a result, more of them graduated, a lot more. Black graduation rates of the University of California system increased by more than 50% after racial preferences were ended, including in the more difficult fields of math and science and engineering, by more than 50%. In other words, racial preferences, which were sold as a way to increase the size of the black middle class had resulted in fewer black doctors, fewer black lawyers and architects and engineers and physicists than we would have had in the absence of these policies. But I would also argue that there's a large cultural component to the racial disparities that we see today. Whether we're talking about employment, education, incarceration, incomes, or other measures. Yet it's become almost taboo to talk about black cultural problems in America. Antisocial behavior, attitudes towards work, school, parenting, and so forth. Black kids teasing one another for acting white. I've often told the story about a trip back home to Buffalo, New York, where I was born and raised. I was visiting my older sister shortly after I'd begun working at the Wall Street Journal. And I was chatting with her daughter, my niece, who was maybe in the second grade at the time. I was asking her about school, her favorite subjects, that sort of thing, when she stopped me. She said, Uncle Jason, why you talk white? And she turned to her little friend who was sitting there beside her and said, don't my uncle sound white? Why are you trying to sound so smart? Now she was just teasing, of course, and I smiled and they enjoyed a little chuckle at my expense. But what she said really stayed with me. 
I couldn't help thinking here were two young black girls, seven or eight years old, already linking speech patterns to intelligence and race. Even at that young age, they already had a rather sophisticated awareness that as blacks, white-sounding speech was not only to be avoided in their own speech, but mocked in the speech of other blacks. Now, I shouldn't have been too surprised by this, and I wasn't. My siblings, along with countless other black friends and relatives, teased me the same way when I was growing up. And other black professionals from the president and the first lady on down told similar stories. What I had forgotten is just how early these attitudes take hold, how soon this counterproductive thinking and behavior begins. New York City, where I'm based, has the largest school system in America. And 80% of black kids in public schools are performing below grade level, 80%. And a big part of the problem is a black subculture that rejects attitudes and behaviors conducive to academic success. Black kids read half as many books and watch twice as much television as their white and Asian counterparts, for example. In other words, a big part of the problem is a culture that produces little black girls who are already worried about acting and sounding white by the time they are in second grade. Another big part of the problem is a reluctance to speak honestly about these cultural shortcomings. Many whites feel being called racist, and many black leaders have a vested interest in blaming black problems primarily on white racism. So that is the narrative they push, regardless of the reality. Racism has become an all-purpose explanation for bad black outcomes, be they social or economic. If you disagree and are white, you're a bigot. If you disagree and are black, you're a sellout. Too often, this is the level of discourse, schoolyard name-calling. That was Jason L. Riley on a Black History Month edition of the QOD show. His website is jasonreillyonline.com. If you want to watch today's entire talk, you'll find it on YouTube. It is called The War on Poverty, a report card, Jason Riley. Hey, before you go, I want to give you some recommendations for books to add to your cart. Order them, read them, study them. First, of course, is Please Stop Helping Us by Jason Riley. We got another book by Jason Riley called Maverick. And this is a biography of a great man named Thomas Sowell. He is uh, an economist. He's been around for a long time, still pumping out. He's got a, he's got a book coming out in June called um, Social Justice Fallacies, which I cannot wait to read. And what, what Thomas Sowell does is he really dives into the real research to see, like, is this true? Or is it not? And so this is his biography. Again, it's called Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. It's a great primer, a good 
entry book on the work of Thomas Sowell. If you want to like skip to his work, I highly recommend you read Discrimination and Disparities. Woo! That book is a mind blower, completely destroys a lot of the narrative that we hear around Black folks and social stuff uh, in this country. Also, we've got a book by Wilford Riley called Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Outstanding book. Of course, we've got Character Building by Booker T. Washington. And then last but not least, uh, this is probably one of my top three books of all time. I think it is the best book ever written on race. It is by Shelby Steele called The Content of Our Character. Ooh, damn good book read that one. And so read them all. I know you're going to enjoy them. I know they'll spark conversation with other people that will be very enlightening for them. And also we can stop doing all this silly stuff. That's just really not helping. All right. That is it for me. Follow me on the Instagram at Sean Croxton, and I will see you tomorrow with another episode of the quote of the day show. I'm out. Peace.